0: Amos, the book of Amos. Why don't you turn there as we get ready to study? All right. Amos chapter one for tonight's study. One of the articles I've saved over the years. that I don't know why this just caught me. as sort of funny. Um, Maybe you guys remember, this is quite a while back, but if you remember Leona Helmsley, she left 12 million dollars to her dog, um, but nothing to her two grandchildren. Um, (laughs) uh, Leona Helmsley's dog will continue to live an opulent life and then be buried alongside her in a mausoleum. Uh, But two of Helmsley's grandchildren got nothing from the late luxury hotelier uh, and real real estate billionaire. Hemsley left her beloved white Maltese named Trouble. Um, apparently Trouble bit one of the housekeepers of one of her hotels, and that's why she was named Trouble, but um, left this dog with a $12 million trust fund according to her will. Um, she said, I direct that when my dog Trouble dies, her remains shall be buried next to my remains in the Hemsley Mausoleum. Uh, Hemsley died uh, in her Connecticut home. She getting known as the symbol of the 1980s greed and earned the nickname the Queen of Mean after her 1988 indictment and subsequent conviction for tax evasion. She said, uh, one employee, or the article read, uh, one employee had quoted her as snarling, only the little people pay taxes. Um, Apparently that's not true. Um, Well, all that to say, uh, the greed, the the Queen of Mean, uh, miserliness and um, stinginess, well, um, you know, like the, the 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 children of Israel, and especially the Northern 10 tribes, during the time of Amos, they had lost their compassion. Uh, they had become greedy, and they were mean to their own people. And they were doing horrible things to their own people and could care less about the poor. Um, and really it's an indictment that uh, Amos is gonna make against the world, and the nations around Israel and Israel and Judea even, all of these areas, um, Amos is gonna come out swinging and hard hitting with the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. And it's because of largely, there's a a real mean-spiritedness. Interesting, because I think that where we're at in the Bible is where we're at in life. And I see that same, as I read through the book of Amos, I'm reminded how we have become kind of a mean-spirited people. And we could care less about the poor. And we are even angry about the poor. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing how you can almost read the Bible. And it's like you're looking in the mirror sometimes as a culture or people group. Or, God forbid, as an individual. You see yourself there uh, when it comes to this idea of greed and what have you. So, um, man, the Lord hopefully will soften our heart as we read these indictments. Um, so let's, let's do a few intro things. First of all, um, let's talk about the prophet himself, Amos. His name means burden, and he's going to bring the burden of the Lord on the people of Israel. Um, His name means burden. Uh, His time that he served, well, this is an interesting thing because a lot of the prophets, it seems that they served most of their lifetime. Some scholars believe Amos acted as a prophet for one week. And that's possible. There's others that think maybe four years at the tops uh, that he was ministering as a, um, as a prophet, but uh, many scholars believe he, he just basically popped on the scene and said, I'm a prophet of the Lord, and he ministered for one week, and then he was done, went back to Judea. Um, so we don't know for sure, but it does seem that it's very possible his ministry was very short-lived, but it was hard-hitting for sure. Uh, we also know of Amos that he was a herdsman, um, his occupation. Uh, as a herdsman, let's start with verse one, and we 'll read a little bit about this herdsman uh, in verse one of chapter one. It says, "The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoah, which he saw concerning Israel, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the j- days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake." Now, in this little single introductory verse, we have a lot of information. Um, but one thing that's kind of interesting here is the fact that he's called a herdsman. And you say, okay, well, you mean like a shepherd? Well, yeah, but... There's only two places in the Bible this Hebrew word is used for herdsmen, and it's kind of an interesting word, in my opinion, because as an old, you know, as an old kid growing up on a farm, we had sheep and cows and uh, horses and uh, rabbits and quail and chickens and all kinds of critters, uh, bees and honey. Like, we had all kinds of stuff on our little farm growing up. Um, but, you know, we, we had several different kinds of sheep on our little farm. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, as an old kid that did this stuff, uh, it is interesting. The word for herdman is actually shepherd, but it's of a specific kind of sheep. Um, and it's like, if you go to Israel, you know, um, we, we, don't, we don't see, you always see the little Hallmark cards, you know, with Jesus carrying the little Suffolk lamb, you know, the little puffy white ones with the black legs, you know, and um, they don't really have many of those over there in Israel. Uh, they're sheep almost look more like goats to most of us uh, with the untrained eye. And in the Middle East, sheep look a lot like goats. But the ugliest sheep on the planet are the ones that were used for the ones that the word Amos is being told here. He is the shepherd of the ugliest sheep in all of the Middle East. I'm not kidding you, Uh, that's the word. That's why it's only used twice in the Bible. It's like, take the ugliest, uh, skinniest little scrawny sheep and they don't really have the curly wool, they have long stringy hair. And it's usually kind of an ugly brownish, blackish, grayish color. And, uh, and they're not really that attractive or cute or anything like that. So it, it is interesting that the, the Bible sort of you know, depicts it as uh, Amos was a, sh- a shepherd of this particular kind of sheep. And, and it's almost like it, it just takes him down a notch even lower in some scholars' minds as far as you know, his occupation as a herdman. But we're also going to find out he was not only a herdman of sheep, but he was a fig picker. A what? Yep. He was a fig picker. Uh, his name, um, you know, uh, means burden. Um, and his burden, his burden was cell phones going off in the sanctuary. Oh, I'm sorry. Never mind. Something just made me say that. Um, no, his, his burden was, uh, you know, as, as occupationally, these, these stringy little hippie sheep, Um, along with being a fig picker. He went around picking figs, and that was his job. Um, So this is interesting, the scraggly sheep, and they were all from that region called Tekoa, which that tells us right here that this is where he was from. He was a herdman of Tekoa, which, um, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah. So um, Tekoa is an interesting place. Now, if you're looking at you know, the map uh, of Israel, you can kind of see you've got Jerusalem, you know, which is up in the mountains, the west bank uh, of the you know, Dead Sea and the Jordan River there up in the mountains. Well, Tekoa is just 12 miles, just a little bit southeast of uh, Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was sort of the classy uh, place where the, you know, legit people were. But Tocoa was another one of those towns, kind of like the men up in Galilee. They would deem them as sort of hicks. Well, that's the way the men of Tocoa were, uh, you know, perceived as sort of hick dudes uh, that lived from Tocoa So he was from hick town shepherding, shepherding hick sheep, a fig picking, hip, hippie sheep raising man from Tocoa um the reason i The reason I sort of posture it this way is because um, most scholars believe this is how Amos would have stumbled on the scene. People'd see this guy and go uh, we're going to we're supposed to listen to him you know like this this guy from Tekoa who is a fig picking sheep herder um, like that that's that's kind of the the response that he, he very likely or could have received. He wasn't, you know, the scholar necessarily like Paul, the apostle who would show up and use an eloquent language and, and Greek and what have you. But he'd just show up Uh, and start speaking the word of the Lord. He lived in Judah, which is the south. So remember, the northern 10 tribes on this map, they lived up in the north from Samaria and up in in that region. And the Lord, will he will call him, we'll see how this will work out here, and we'll get more in chapter seven when we get there, that the Lord would call him out of Judah to go up to speak to the men of, of the north and specifically to the place called Bethel, which means house of God. And Bethel was a place where they had fancy ivory houses. Um, the people of Bethel were wealthy and they were sort of the Lake Oswego, honestly. If, if you're talking about, you know, uh, where I grew up, Applegate, that'd be sort of the tocoa. Um and, and then you got Lake Oswego, where people have really nice houses around the lake and stuff. Well, that would be Bethel. So uh, you got this sort of hick showing up in Bethel where there's ivory houses. By the way, in Bethel, they've found in archeological ruins And and with the situation, people had summer homes and winter homes uh, that lived in Bethel during the time of Amos. Um, And there were many scholarly people uh, that were living there. But the sad thing about Bethel, particularly, even though it's called the house of God, um, it it was a place that was largely turned to the worshiping of idols. Um, So they were very fancy, very wealthy, but very idolatrous, the men of Bethel. And that's where uh, you know, Amos is gonna hike up to Bethel and be the prophet that speaks there. And he's not just gonna speak to Bethel. He's, he's really got a message to much of the known world at that time. Um, and, and that's the deal. What was the situation during the time Amos came on the scene? Well, we know the fairly precise time when he was called. He was called two years before the earthquake. You know how we talk about, you know, someday in Oregon, there's gonna be the big one. Well, there there was a big one back uh, around 760 BC. There's debate on when exactly this massive earthquake. Uh, uh, the epicenter was probably, uh, people believe, a place called Hazor, we, we say uh, Hazor here, but in Israel, you call it Hazor. And that was probably the epicenter of this earthquake that that rippled 100 miles in circumference. And, and every pillar that was uh, standing in the world at that time, fell because of this earthquake and they all fell the same direction. Uh, archaeological digs have undeniably shown that around you know, this 760 BC, there was this huge earthquake um, one of the biggest cities, by the way, um, that was like that was uh, Jarash, Jarash in Jordan, and, and the pillars all fell down. It's really interesting to see some of the archaeological digs. Bet Shean, if you've ever been to Bet Shean, a lot of you, if you've been to Israel, they take you there as an archaeological ruin. But all those pillars fell uh, 760 BC, and, and, um, and often, uh, you know, that's a, a point that people sort of use as a marker in history. Well, it says here that two years before the earthquake, that's when uh, Amos came on the scene and did his ministry. So somewhere around the 760, uh, you know, or, or a little earlier, maybe uh, 758 or so, uh, he was on the scene in ministry. Um, and uh, the kings of the time, we'll remember civil war, two, two kingdoms, but there was a relative peace between the two kingdoms during this time. One reason, because the king of Judah, where uh, Amos was from, was Uzziah. And Uzziah was a good good king, and um, there were good things going on in Judah at that time. In the north, the king was Jeroboam II. If you're uh, following the kings of the north, and he was, there was not a good king ever in the north. So we know all the time when we talk about the kings of the north, we know they were all bad. And Jeroboam II was bad as well. Um, and, um, And so Israel was living in general peace. Even Jeroboam II, even though he's evil, he had subdued most of the enemies around the northern, uh, or all of Israel. Uh, Jeroboam was a powerful military uh, general who was successful in bringing peace into that region. And so the thing you have to kind of picture is here comes Amos prophesying during a time of real peace. Everybody's happy. Uh, people are getting wealthy and, uh, um, and people are living com- comfortably in their ivory homes in Bethel and, and everything seems to be going along just fine. But this would be the era of Amos' ministry and this is the calm before the big storm. This is the calm before the Lord pours out his judgment on these nations as they would reject and rebel. So, you know, you and I have been through several prophets here, the major prophets, the minor prophets, and we've seen, we know what's gonna happen. We know the northern 10 tribes are gonna be taken away by the Assyrians not too long after Amos prophesies. Um, They're gonna be dragged off by the Assyrians. And then, you know, uh, quite a bit after that, then the Babylonians would take the southern tribes into captivity as well. So we know the way this all shakes out we have to sort of rewind in our mind and realize this is Amos prophesying when things are good. Sometimes I wonder if it's harder to, to you know, speak the word of the Lord when things are really, really good or when people are real desperate. Um, you know, as we read these prophets, we get a chance to see sort of both. Um, and, um, and what's interesting to me is people are rebellious in whatever state they're in. They might have more of a, oh, remember when they said, oh, you know, Jeremiah, just tell us what to do and we'll do it. Because remember, they were desperate. And Jeremiah said, okay, here's what you do. And then they said, you're a liar and we're not gonna follow you, remember that? Um, that so, you know, people are just stubborn and rebellious. That's just the humanity of it all. So, you know, you've got the author, we've got um, the prophet Amos. Uh, the situation, relative peace, uh, but it's about to come down and Amos is gonna speak the truth. But the, the book itself, uh, as we look at this little book, um, of nine chapters, we're going to see kind of two major divisions in the book. In verses, or chapters one through six, we're going to see um, eight nations that are going to be specifically denounced by Amos the prophet. Eight nations denounced. In chapters seven through nine, we're going to see uh, visions of what God's going to do and what's going to happen announced. So the first seven, or pardon me, first six chapters, eight nations denounced. Um, Chapters nine, uh, seven through nine, five visions announced. Uh, well, that's what we're gonna see here. And, um, and basically, what's the main message of the book? Well, it's what I said. Israel was experiencing the calm before the storm, and that's what Amos' message is. You guys are living large now. You're living comfortably now, but the times are coming. Judgment is coming. The Lord is coming. And that's what the message of Amos is gonna be. So let's continue. So we've got this interesting first verse that kind of explains the time, the prophet, uh, the situation, all that stuff. But now the Lord's coming, Amos says. Look at verse two. And he said, Amos said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. Um, Man, the the lion from Zion uh, is coming, the roar. Have you ever seen a lion roar? Have you ever been near a lion that roars? Um, It's almost hard to imagine that that, that, like there's a beast that has vocal cords that can do what it does. Um, Do you know when you watch those old movies, you see the MGM lion and he roars there in that logo and everything? That lion lived one mile down the road from my house when I was a kid growing up, that very lion. I'm not kidding. Uh, there was an animal actor's farm that uh, was li- there in Southern Oregon at Applegate. Um, uh, and there were lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Uh, there were giraffe uh, that was there from time to time. Um, but the reason I always think of that when I, when I hear about a roar of a lion is I know what that feels like because in the summertime, particularly when my window is open in my bedroom, um, they always would feed the lion just before my bedtime. Um, And the lion would start to roar uh, right about when, you know, they'd throw the stakes over the, the fence or whatever, they'd feed this lion. And um, the MGM lion, man, when he roared, the, like a mile away, you could feel, I don't know how to describe it, but you could feel like the subwoofer quality of it still. Like it wasn't just a, you know, meow. It was like, and you're, it, you almost feel the it shake. And I was a mile away from that barn. Um, my sisters and I would ride our bikes down, you know, in the evening just to, just to kind of see them feed you. Cause you could kind of see across the fences, them feeding the bear and the lions and stuff like that. But man, There's nothing like a roar of a lion. Can you imagine when people see the power of God, especially in judgment and wrath? You know, you think you've seen it on the TV, but wait till you see it in real. When the wrath of God comes and the judgment of God comes, it's not gonna be a laughing matter. And people are gonna be shocked at, you know, what's really gonna happen. And the problem we have is we uh, have presented the Lord as, you know, the, the good shepherd, which he is. When Jesus came, he came humbly and made himself of no reputation. But the problem is people sort of mistake Jesus and his first coming and people make jokes about Jesus. People use the name of Jesus in vain. I'll bet you when it all comes down and the lion of the tribe of Judah comes to you know, judge and pour out his wrath, you know, he's not coming as the carpenter this time, he's coming as the king. He's not coming to be you know, judged by the world like he did the first time. He came to judge the world, the second coming. That's, you know, it's gonna be the lion from Zion, the same, you know, uh, powerful God, king of kings that created the heavens and the earth. And, and don't, don't make that mistake where you kinda make sort of Jesus the, the sort of this little um, weak, oh, Jesus is coming, the wrath of the lamb, really scary, you know. But I I, I do need to tell people, and that's part of our message as Christians, is the wrath of God is coming, and it's not going to be a joke. It's going to be earth-shattering and shaking, and the mountains are going to tremble. Mount Hood is going to tremble at the roar of the lion from Zion. I hope you understand that, especially if you're watching as an unbeliever uh, or tuning in here. uh, you got to understand, it's no joke. Um, so he is called here, the lion that's going to roar, as it says, from Zion, that's Jerusalem, and utter his voice from Jerusalem. Um, and uh, the shepherds are going to mourn because there's going to be no place for the you know, animals and critters. Um, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Mount Carmel Uh, That whole mountain region, by the way, is one of the prettiest areas in Israel. And there's all kinds of olive trees that grow even to this day on Mount Carmel. When we go up to Mount Carmel, uh, we go up and see where Elijah slew the prophets of Baal. And then we come down just um, from the very top of Mount Carmel. We drive maybe a quarter of a mile down the mountain and we stop at a falafel restaurant where we eat the olives and stuff from, uh, from Mount Carmel, the, the very olives from the trees there. And uh, it's just kind of fun, you know, eating of the fruit of Mount Carmel. But, you know, even in, in you know, Amos's day, that was a fruitful place. And the, and the Lord is saying through Hosea, the, the roar from Zion's coming and, and even Carmel is gonna wither. Um, That that would have spoken uh, a lot to uh, the people of Israel as far as how things are going to be really bad. Um, So all that to say, you know, Jesus came and one of his autobiographic, his only autobiographical statement that he made was, I am meek and lowly of heart. That's what Jesus said. That was his first coming. But meekness—don't mistake meekness for weakness. Um, we have to remember that, uh, you know, Jesus is also uh, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So all that to say, um, now um, as as we proceed, He's going to start calling out the nations. Um, uh, now this is interesting. Uh, as Amos is is going to—he just mentioned Mount Carmel, which was you know the northern part of Israel. But now he's gonna sideline and go to the other nations around Israel and talk about the judgments upon them. So he was gonna address all the great world powers of that day. It'd be like today if you said China, you know, Russia, the United States, um, you know, maybe some of the other countries that are powerful, you might list all those. That's what Amos is gonna set his sights on and he's gonna do it at the beginning of his, of his um, dissertation as a prophet. Um, now, you might say, well, Brett, we went through Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel. They also listed the other nations, Moab and Edom and, you know, Syria and all these other nations, no, no big difference. But just a little thing to note, those other prophets always mentioned those judgment of those nations after they first proclaimed real judgment on Israel. Um, so Amos kind of changes the order out of all the prophets. He's going to really start... Uh, um, by speaking of God's judgment of of the other nations, and then he's gonna zoom in on to Israel toward the end. Just a little different tactic that Amos uses. But as we proceed to verse three, the first nation he's gonna call out is the nation Syria. Let's take a look. It says in verse three, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Now pause just for a second. What did he just say? For three transgressions of Damascus, which is the capital, by the way, of Syria, uh, even to this day, Damascus is that. By the way, Damascus is the oldest city with a continual habitation in the world. Did you know that? Damascus, Um, and uh, we'll talk about that in a second, but here the Lord says, um, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Now, the reason I stop on this is we're gonna come across this phrase over and over and over again in, in the book of Amos here, and you're gonna say, what is he saying that for? Well, it's sort of like an idiom that they would use of that day saying, it's, it's not saying, well, literally they, they're getting called out because they did four sins. No, it's um, the reason he says for three um, and then for four is he's basically saying, it's basically adding sin upon sin upon sin. The reason Syria is gonna be judged or Damascus is gonna be judged is because they just continue to sin upon sin upon sin, adding sin to sin. Um, that's what this little idiom of the Jews, for three or for four, that means uh, just continually piling up exponentially their sins. So you can be familiar with that when we bump into that. So he says, you know, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. But I will send a fire unto the house of Hazael and shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. And I will break also the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon. And him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden and the people of Syria shall go into captivity to Ker, saith the Lord." So I told you already Damascus is the oldest city in the world that's been continually inhabited. That's kind of an important part of that. But um, the reason that's interesting is because, let me remind you of of an amazing prophecy of the Bible that I find intriguing, especially in light of what's happening in the world right now. Damascus is on the news almost every night right now. And it has been for you know the last couple decades decades almost. Why is Damascus such a big deal? It's on the northern border of Israel when you're up on the Golan Heights in Israel, um, which by the way, the Golan Heights is mentioned in our verses we just read. It's just got a different name than uh, what we uh, read here in the Bible. But it's when it says in verse three, because they have threshed Gilead with the threshing instruments of iron. Gilead is, is the old name for today, Golani or the Golan Heights. Now, when we go to Israel, that's another place I take you is up on the Golan Heights. We drive up above the Sea of Galilee and go up into the mountains of the Golan Heights. And we go up to Mount Bental, which is one of the higher spots there in the Golan Heights that you can look down into Syria. You know, if you get down to the bottom of the other side of the mountain that we're on, you actually are in Syria. And if you stay there on a clear night, you can see the lights glowing across the horizon from the city Damascus. You can't see Damascus but you can see the lights glowing, you know how they reflect off the atmosphere. Um, You can see the lights of Damascus. And and so, so this is a key city, it's the capital of Syria. But look what Isaiah 17, I'll just read it to you, you can jot it down. It says, the burden of Damascus, behold, Damascus will be taken away from being a city and it shall be a ruinous heap, a ruinous heap. And it talks about how it will basically never be inhabited again there in Isaiah 17. The thing about that prophecy that's interesting is it's never happened. Was the Bible wrong? Did it make a mistake? Is it one of the prophecies the Bible just didn't get right? Nope, Uh, it's just one of the prophecies in the Bible that hasn't yet happened. And I believe Isaiah 17 prophecy of Damascus is gonna happen probably either very close to or might even be the spark that ignites the Gog Magog invasion. Um, what's that all about? Well, you'll have to go check out all our teachings on that. Look up Ezekiel 38, 39, uh, and the Gog Magog invasion is a big deal in Bible prophecy. But you'd say, well, why would anybody want to destroy Damascus? Um, well, right now, as we speak weekly, Israel is sending rockets and even fighter jets over and bombing positions in Damascus right now. Why are they doing that? That's not very nice. I watched CNN and it, they said that that's not very nice. Um, well, here's the, the reason Israel sends rockets uh, over there because um, the Iranians have taken up position. Now remember, the Iranians, even the president of Iran has said, we're gonna blow Israel off the map. We hate the Jews, death to Israel, death to America. Um, and the, the Iranians, you know, some ask, you know Sir, Syria has been in civil war for years now and it's a total disaster. It's heartbreaking to see what's happened in Syria. But, you know, the stabilizing forces there are, believe it or not, Russia and Iran. And even Turkey's getting involved, which again, the Gog Magog invasion is totally postured right now to happen with the players of Ezekiel 38, 39. Meanwhile, they're all taking up position in Damascus, which is just just right over the Israeli border. And so all that to say, um, you know, there's all these stockpiles of weapons the Iranians are trying to build up in Damascus and the Jews are saying, we are not gonna let the Iranians set up their missiles and their weapons in Damascus right on our northern border. That's not gonna happen. But it's amazing. They're still sending truckloads and trying to sneak in weapons. It just so happens the Jews with the Mossad and all that, they've got a pretty good intelligence situation and they pretty much know when those weapons arrive. And so every time they do, the Jews blow them up because they don't want those Iranians having their missiles. And by the way, the Jews, uh, one thing you gotta be careful about with the, the Israeli nation, you gotta remember, they're, they're, they're gathered there in unbelief. They're not necessarily you know, godly people in Israel, they're, but they are still God's people. That's the thing you have to remember. But um, there will be a day when they all turn toward the Lord. But, so I can't always defend everything Israel does and says. But at the same time, it's amazing how it does t- tend to follow Bible prophecy. One of the things Israel has said, and, and they've threatened. And when Israel makes a threat, by the way, uh, I wouldn't really recommend going against that because they tend to carry out their threats as a small, tiny little nation that's very powerful. One of the things that Israel has threatened, when the, the Iranians put all these missiles in there, they said if one of those missiles flies across our border into Israel. Um, and you know we're not talking about the little Scud missiles or the uh, Katusha rockets that tend to fly over some of the you know, uh, kind of prehistoric missiles. But if any one of these you know, missiles from the Iranians or the Russians come across the Israeli border, the Israelis said, we will promise you that Damascus will become a parking lot. Um, now, the implication of that is nuclear. Um, you know, for the longest time, Israel never even admitted to having nuclear weapons, even though the whole world knew they did and It was just kind of a funny thing if we had nuclear weapons we 'll flatten Damascus and make it a parking lot that 's kind of what they said and they said this like fifteen years ago um, and so not one of their missiles have flown over the border but Mark my words, uh, when the Iranians or whoever wants to do this uh, leads the charge there and starts firing from Damascus into Israel legitimately, um, you mark my words, uh, watch Isaiah 17 prophecy unfold and then watch the Gog Magog invasion unfold. And the reason that's kind of interesting is things are postured to do that right now. Like it's not even hard to imagine uh, logistically for that to happen tomorrow. Um, are you So should we be freaked out? No, we should be looking at Jesus and excited about his soon return. Uh, that could be soon, we really could be, or could not be, maybe it'll be another, you know, who knows, but we're to live with that expectation that is soon uh, coming, is, it could be right around the corner. Lots of evidence of the, his soon return, if you ask me. I didn't mean to get into all that. Um, but this is a curse upon Damascus. Now, by the way, uh, I probably shouldn't go down this rabbit trail either, but... Um, <laughs> When we go to Mount Bental, there's all these foxholes and bunkers. We even kind of climb around in some of these bunkers and stuff, it's kind of fun. Um, but what's amazing, uh, the Yom Kippur War, uh, um, w- some people kind of thought things were gonna come down then and I'll tell you why. When, when Egypt and these Arab nations attacked Israel and Yom Kippur, um, one of the things that people don't know about is this tank war that happened from Syria up onto the Golan Heights. Did you know that in one day, more tanks crossed the border from Syria to Israel than every tank that was used in World War II? More tanks than every tank that was world, world, used in World War II, more tanks crossed the Syrian border into Israel. And Israel defended themselves with these kind of, they had way less tanks than the Syrians. Now the Israeli tanks were legit tanks, I'll have to say that. Um, and, um, and yet the Syrian tanks, they just had you know thousands of them. And some of the battles that you read about in the Yom Kippur War in 1973, it's amazing. So when I take you up to Bental and Golan Heights, you see all these deserted Syrian tanks laying everywhere. Like they're, they're, you can spot them everywhere. There's just little rusted out tanks uh, where they're still sitting there. And also you don't wanna leave our group because there's still landmines that are active from the Yom Kippur War in that region. So don't run away after lunch eating your falafel and go off into the olive groves unless you're with somebody who kind of knows. But anyway, um, that whole region has been torn by war for a long, long time. But this is the area that here Amos is talking about, it's amazing, that's been a hot contested area from the very beginning uh, in the world, that Golan Heights and that region of the world. And here in our text, this is where Amos is saying, man, you know, Damascus, you're gonna be judged, Gilead, the Golan Heights, which was Syria at that time, um, you, you guys are in trouble. And here's, here's your indictment. It's because of cruelty. Check it out. Let's keep reading. So it says there, you know, for, for three d- d- transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the, you know, the punishment thereof because they have threshed Gilead with the threshing instruments of iron. That's, they keep crushing the people of, of that region of Golani, Gilead. And, um, and it says, I will send fire to the house of Hatzel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. These are the These are the people that were just cruel to the people of Israel. And that's really why God says, I'm gonna judge Syria or Damascus, it's kind of the one and the same, um, for their, their, their cruelty of what they've done. And what they're going to do is go into captivity themselves. The Lord pronounces that curse upon them. So the, the first nation mentioned is Syria. Number two, the second nation um, is gonna be Gaza. Isn't that interesting? What are the two hottest places connected to Israel to this day? The Golanites and the Gaza Strip, even to this day. since so it's the first two ones that Amos mentions. It's kind of amazing. Things haven't really changed all that much in thousands of years. But the Gaza Strip, if you remember uh, years ago, uh, Ariel Sharon gave over the Gaza Strip to the, you know, the Palestinian Hamas. And um, back then it was really coming to be a nice place. Um, And then when they drove all the Jews out, and now it's just a hotbed for those, you know, green scarf wearing, uh, you know, basic, um, you know, terrorist Hamas people, they've just destroyed the Gaza Strip. And uh, it's in real peril right now because of the way they've handled everything. But um, this, even in in Amos's time, the Gaza area um, would be judged. Check it out. It says in verse six, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza which shall devour the palaces thereof and I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and from him that uh, holdeth the scepter from Ashkelon and I will um, turn mine hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, saith the Lord." Now this is interesting because um, this is that southern region region around Gaza, and the Gaza Strip, and even a little bit north of that. A few years ago, we had the chance to, after the tour group left, we um, toured down near the Gaza Strip. It's not really a great place to bring tour groups because missiles do fly in that region. Um, so we rented an armored vehicle and drove all around that area and had some fun. Uh, but we went to all the five Philistine cities, three of which are named here. You got Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon. Ashkelon, by the way, is one of the prettiest towns. Uh, it's, like, it's like driving through San Diego. It's beautiful down there. The only problem is missiles are dropping there uh, from time to time, like daily. But anyway, other than that, uh, it's just like San Diego. Now, thankfully, because of Iron Dome, Israeli Iron Dome, those missiles often don't Uh, hardly ever reach their targets. And sometimes they hit a field or something like that. Rarely will they actually hit a target. But um, that whole area is troubled today, but the Lord says, I'm gonna trouble Gaza. And it's largely because of the ancient people that that were there, the Philistines. Um, And it says that, but you can check the box when you look at verse eight, when it says, "Uh, the remnant of the Philistine shall perish, saith the Lord God. That's checked. The remnant of Philistines. There are no Philistines on the earth today. The Philistines, by the way, were not Muslim Arabs like the Palestinians today. The Palestinians of today are largely from Jordan. Jordanian Palestinians is who they are. Um, and the, the the word Palestinian, even you know, a hundred years ago, meant people that lived in Palestine, which included Jews. Um, in 1924, if you looked up the Palestinian Post. It was a Jewish newspaper edited by Jews. If you looked up the Palestinian orchestra, it was a Jewish orchestra that lived in Israel called the Palestinian. It was Yasser Arafat in the 60s and 70s who was able to change this idea of a Palestinian, someone who lived in Israel that was renamed Palestine by the Romans, um, to be these Arabs that had been displaced, sad to say. Um, And these poor Palestinians, as they're called today, which is the modern way of saying Philistine, Um, they're actually not Philistines. They're just displaced Jordanians. And then they're being really used as pawns to fight the Arab-Israeli conflict. That's really a heartbreaking um, situation Uh, for the Palestinians. uh, People, uh, the leaders of the Palestinians, I think, largely are evil. But the people are sweet, beautiful people who are stuck in a really tough spot. uh, And that's really kind of hard. But... The interesting thing is the Philistines don't exist. They were a Phoenician people that came through the Mediterranean and, and sailed down through the Mediterranean and settled on the southern Mediterranean area below Israel called the Gaza Strip. That was where the Philistines were from. And they're from Ashkelon, Ekron, Ashdod, um, and uh, these, these uh, Philistine cities. But the Lord says through Amos, the remnant of those Philistines will never exist anymore. They'll, be, they'll cease to exist. And the end of verse eight actually has come to pass. That's a fulfilled prophecy to this day. So that's the next group. The the third group that we wanna talk about here, and and, uh, Amos is gonna pass judgment on, is the men of Tyre. Um, It says in verse nine, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Tyrus and for four. What does that mean? Sin upon sin upon sin, right? Because they just kept sinning, uh, Tyre, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant, but I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, uh, which shall devour the palaces thereof. So in Syria, the problem was cruelty. I forgot to mention in Gaza, the problem the indictment against them was slavery. And we saw that where it says in verse six, they carried away the captive, the whole captivity to deliver to the Edomites. So they made the Jews and people, uh, their, their captives slaves and sold them as slaves. And the Lord says, I see the behavior of nations and I'm gonna judge them for that. So the men of Tyre, they broke a treaty uh, there it says. They remembered not the brotherly covenant that they had made. Um, by the way, um, this brotherly covenant um, is, uh, you know, seen in 1 Kings chapter five. If you can jot that down, in your notes. In 1 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, um, and also 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, that's the Old Testament story where these men of Tyre broke their covenant and uh, sinned against the Lord and against Israel. Isn't it interesting? It should cause pause for you and me, especially if you're in a government uh, position. Um, You know, the Lord seems to notice when nations break their treaties. Did you notice that? I mean, here's a godless group of people, the men of Tyre, who made a covenant that they broke it. But especially when you break your covenant with the Jews, that's when you gotta really watch out because God takes note of that. What's the name of the judgment that's gonna come in the future where God judges the nations, how they treated Israel? Right, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. That's gonna happen. God's gonna divvy up the nations, say you guys treated Israel badly and somehow that's gonna come into play in the future. Here, the Lord's calling out Tyre. Now, by the way, there's other times we've seen Tyre judge. Remember the judgment upon Tyre in Ezekiel 26 and 27? Um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's where you know, they, the, the Lord says, I will cause Tyre to become flat, a flat Tyre. Remember that? And God says, I will not spare Tyre. He said that. Um, and uh, they tried to patch things up, but it didn't, it didn't work. Sorry, 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 anyway but it didn't work. They got destroyed entirely. Uh, they were destroyed. Sorry. Um, well, this, this is kind of that matching prophecy of Ezekiel 26 and 27. Uh, Amos is in line with Ezekiel on that. And, and that's another one. You can check the box. Tyre was destroyed. Remember the whole thing of Napoleon, or probably uh, Alexander the Great, and remember the whole thing of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and there's a whole ser- series of kings and kingdoms that came and scraped Tyre flat. And you know, uh, you know, it was really quite a quite a deal. Uh, but all that to say, even the Crusaders ended up being kind of the final scraping of of uh, that area, Tyre, uh, that we've talked about in previous studies. Well, their, their uh, biggest indictment against them was breaking treaty uh, against the Israelis. Number four, you've got the Edomites. It says in verse 11, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Edom and for four. I will not turn away the punishment thereof because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity and his anger did tear perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman which, is, uh, which shall devour the uh, palaces of Basra. Uh, so the Edomites, Edom, if you recall, Edom, um, the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? Uh, Jacob became the father of uh, you know, the Jews um, and uh, Esau became the father of the Edomites. Um, and, uh, and by the way, that, that continued, you know, they were enemies if you remember in the story, but they continued to be enemies uh, and the family was not really on speaking terms uh, after the whole Jacob and Esau thing. Um, and, and, and the Moabites and the Edomites became real enemies of Israel. Their indictment uh, here is a revengeful sort of spirit, <coughs> excuse me, trying to get back um, at, you know, at, at um, the people of Israel. And he said, I will not turn away my punishment because he did pursue his brother with a sword and did uh, cast off all pity. Uh, One thing to to say about this whole Edomite thing, it's such a shame. You know, the Edomites should have been friends of Israel because they were family, really, when you think of Jacob and Esau. But one of the things you'll see is often the uh, people that we should be close to are sometimes the ones that are our worst enemies. And uh, what's really tough is when it's family that you don't get along with or people that, you know, are your enemies. And just a reminder, um, you know, that root of bitterness is demonstrated. One of the things that the book of the Bible talks about when you read about the Edomites is how it seemed like there was a bitterness from the time of Jacob and Esau that just kept going on generation upon generation, and, um, and, and that should never happen with you and your family. Just something to think about. What does the Bible say? Um, remember Ephesians, I, I put this verse up here because it just strikes me as what a lot of families need to remember and it's, and, you know, it's hard. I'm not, I'm not saying this is easy. But um, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. So this idea of, of, you know, um, how how has Christ forgiven you? Man, he's forgiven me and you for all of our sins. Uh, He forgave us before we were even sorry. The Roman that was crucifying him on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know know what they're doing. Um, So you and I, we've got a a challenge to be like Jesus. And when it comes to our family members, Sometimes they're, we're, I'm not going to forgive them. I'm never speaking to that person ever again, you know. And we chalk them off and stuff like that. And it's really a shame because that's a root of bitterness. And I think that the Edomites are kind of a perfect illustration of that. They were longtime enemies of Israel because they never really reconciled with kind of family, you know, which is unfortunate and sad. But that's what I think of when I think of the Edomites. Well. The next nation mentioned here, um, you got the Edomites, but then you got the Ammonites. Now, Edom is in that region of more of the uh, southern part of the east side of Israel, you know, where like um, Petra and below, if you know your map around that region of the world. And, um, but then the uh, Ammonites lived north of the Edomites. And you can remember Ammon uh, as Ammon. When you go to Ammon, Jordan, that's where the Ammonites were. That's a name that kind of stuck. Uh, to that region of the Jordanians today. Much of Jordan includes the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. That's part of the Jordanian kingdom, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. Um, Most people don't realize this, they call Israel the Bible land, but so much of the Bible happened in Jordan. Uh, If you didn't know that, that's why I think it's worth it, even though it's a little bit of work on our tour when we go to Israel to cross the border into Jordan, it's work. Uh, and You're going into a third world country. We almost always get people to get a little bit sick uh, when we go to Jordan, because it, it's just kind of a third world country and it's the way it is. But um, it's real eye opening and it's a life changer if you ask me. And if you're ever in that region of the world and you can go see Petra and Mount Nebo and some of these places, it's totally worth it if you ask me. Um, a lot of tour groups don't go over there because it's a little tricky. But um, we go there and we drive through Ammon when we go to Israel uh, and and go over to Jordan. But what's the indictment? Uh, Violent crimes. That's what the Lord calls out. He says in verse 13, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon, or Ammon, and four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead that they might enlarge their border. I will kindle a fire in the well of Rabbah, and it shall devour the palaces thereof with shouting in the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. their king shall go into captivity and his princes together, saith the Lord. And if you follow the story of the Ammonites, that's exactly what happened. This this is a very precise prophecy the Lord gave to Amos that uh, in fact came to pass because of their violent crimes. Um, now we go to chapter two, and we, we, we add, one, uh, add, add a little bit more to our list. Uh, number six, Moab, the Moabites. Verse one, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Moab and for four. I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. And I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kerioth. Uh, and Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting, and with the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the judge <clears throat> from the midst thereof, and will slay all the princes thereof with him, saith the Lord. Um, what did the Moabites do? Um, notice what they did here is the way they treated the dead. You say, well, Brett, so far I kind of get all the other ones, you know, slavery, cruelty, breaking treaty, uh, revengeful spirit, violent crimes, um, But this one, so they did what to a dead king? They burned him? Uh, Well, here's what you have to understand. They went and dug up this king's bones and burned the the king's bones. Why would somebody do that? Well, it was probably likely for their own, you know, demoralization of their enemy, but also as part of their religious practices. Um, Now, this brings up an interesting question I get asked from time to time. Brett, um, Uncle Bill was cremated Um, is that evil? Is that bad? And why would somebody ask that? Well, it is interesting that um, the Jews and God's people, they were always given to the burial uh, process of burying the the body. Um, But it was always the, just FYI, I'm not making a statement one way or the other, but um, it was always the enemies of God that would do these ceremonial burnings of their bodies uh, and stuff like that. Now, some people say, well, Brett, I would not be, you know, um, cremated because, um, because of the resurrection, you know, and the Lord's gonna put our bodies back together and I, I don't wanna burn my body because I want it to be put back together. Um, let me just tell you the flaw in your thinking there. If you're buried in the ground, the Lord still has a lot of work to do at that point. <laughs> now there's good news. Is, is it harder for God to put you back together in your deteriorated form, even if you were buried by the Egyptians? Uh, or is it harder for him to to put you back together after being you know put turned into carbon or whatever? Um, it's not any is anything too hard for the Lord. No, so that, I don't think I would use that for a reason of why not you know whether a person wants to be buried or cremated. But it is something to pray about. Interesting that that just traditionally, historically, even biblically, God's people always buried their people. Um, and, and I'm not making a statement one way or the other, but just, just I, I would say, when you're planning your future or whatever, um, pray about it and say, Lord, what would you have us to do? Is it cremation? And I, I don't think you can make a airtight argument, in my opinion, one way or the other, but it's just something that I kind of put in more of an interesting category. Um, but these guys were, it wasn't just that they burned the bones of a dead guy, they burned the bones of a king in a ceremonial pagan kind of way, and it was meant to demoralize um, Uh, you know, their enemies, the Moabites did this. And the Lord says, I see that, I see what you're doing and I'm gonna judge you for the way you had the treatment of the dead king and what have you. Um, Well, that brings us to, now we're dialing in a little closer to home, number seven, the the men of Judah. Now remember, I told you that Amos, we're gonna find out later in the book, he was called out of Judah to Koa and went up into Israel to do these prophecies. So the, Israel, the, the 10 Northern tribes are hearing, oh, Syria, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, you know, they're like, yeah, let them have it, Amos, those enemy nations. But now Amos is starting to get closer to Israel. He's even now gonna go to his own home country, Judah, and talk about them. And can you guess who's gonna be next after Judah? Well, yeah, you guessed it, Israel. So, so what, does he, what does he gotta say about Judah? And what's their, what's their indictment? Well, it says here in verse, um, verse four, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments and their lies caused them to err after the which their fathers have walked. And I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Now the men of, of uh, Israel would have thought cool, because you know in their mind that's just like the other nations. The men of Judah were technically their enemy; they'd been in civil war, so let them have it, God, you know. But um, be careful, you know, having that sort of vengeful mindset's never going to be good. And these are their brothers, whether they want to admit it or not. The men of Judah and the men of Israel were brothers; they were Jews. Uh, but Amos says, because you've despised the law of the Lord. That, um, the law of the Lord is, is the same thing as saying the word of God. And that's something that I think um, the Lord speaks of as much as just about any of these things in the Bible as just rejecting God's word. Oh, I hope our nation is careful. You know, we're, we're making decisions left and right that are contrary to God's word. Our Supreme Court is making decisions. Even with you know, the, the balance of, of you know, world views that we have now in the Supreme court, it's not a slam dunk. You know? and, and we have to be careful because some of the judgments we've seen in, in recent years have been contrary to the word of God. And the Lord says, I see that. I see when nations despise my word. And that's what the men of Judah did. So the Lord said, I was gonna set a fire and the palaces of Jerusalem are going down. Um, Verse six is where we move to the eighth group here that's gonna be judged and that is none other than Israel themselves. Verse six. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar. And they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, you know, the giants. He was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. And I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up your sons for prophets and your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and command the prophets saying, prophesy not." Wow. See, Amos has been talking about all these other nations. Now he turns to the people listening and says, and as for you guys, men of Israel. And do you get a sense he's, 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 now he's really focusing and saying, okay, let's talk about you. And he calls them out on a bunch of things that are just really horrible. The first thing they do is, um, and, and you know, I'm, I'm basically saying their indictment is multiple counts. They have multiple indictments against them. The first is mean spiritedness and cruelty to the poor. It starts out saying, you know, you've sold the righteous for silver. You know, just, just people that were good people, you sold for slaves. Uh, the poor for a pair of shoes. You know, if people owed money for shoes, they, if the poor couldn't pay, they'd just sell them off as slaves. Um, and they could care less about the, the, the poor. Um, and then, you know, they would go in, you know, some, some man would go into his handmaid, his wife's maid, and, uh, you know, the idea of sexual immorality was running rampant. And they would, they would lay their clothes down by a pledge. And by the way, in Exodus 22:26, 26, there's a, a way of making a pledge where you take your cloak off and you lay it down. And there was a way of saying, you know, this cloak will be yours if I don't pay this thing. And it was sort of a, a, a promise. But by the way, what you were supposed to do is give them their coat back before the sun went down because it might get cold. Like the Lord had this sort of sign of, of a promise of a treaty or an agreement or a um, contract But it was never to say, yeah, I'm gonna keep your coat even though it's cold outside. The Lord never gave them provision for that. But the idea is you're doing the coat treaty thing, but you're doing it before pagan altars and you're not doing it in the way of the Bible. And and the Lord says, and then the Lord calls him out, unlike the other nations. And he says, man, I delivered you guys from the Amorites, the Canaanites, the flashlights and all the others. Um, I did that. The, the you know, all, the, all these nations that were there in the land of Canaan, the Lord says, I delivered you from them, but you could care less about that, is what he's saying. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, verse you know, um, uh, 10. And I gave you the prophets and even the Nazarites. And this is what I was mentioning on Sunday. Remember, can two walk together unless they be agreed? We saw that on Sunday. Um, and really, what, what we see here is um, the Lord saying, man, I gave you prophets and I even gave you the Nazarites, but you, you're, you're forcing the Nazarites to drink wine. It says that right here, uh, verse 12, but you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets saying, prophesy not. The people are saying, we don't wanna hear it from the prophets and we don't like it when people are trying to be holy like the Nazarites, so pour wine down their throat. Um, this, is, this is a verse, uh, you know, verse 12 is one that's worthy of our modern day meditation and consideration. I, I worry about this even in the church. You know, if it, we're in a day where the church has become hostile toward the Nazarite, if you would. Let's, let's talk about alcohol for a second, since that's what he mentioned here. Um, I'm, I'm always amazed at how um, that, that whole notion of drinking alcohol and, and, and you know, drunkenness, and you know, excessive drinking, how it's changed so much in the last 20 years of my ministry life, just watching it in the church. Because we've always said, you know, the Bible never, you know, says you can't drink wine or even alcohol or whatever. Like the Bible doesn't prohibit that. But the Bible does talk about drunkenness and how that's just really a radical sin that could even keep you out of heaven, the Bible says. It's listed in those deadly sins in the New Testament that says those who continually practice drunkenness and others like adultery and homosexuality and other kinds of sins, those who continually practice those things and are unrepentant will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's what the Bible says. But this idea of drunkenness, you know, it's, it's sad because I've watched this thing within the church and now if you're a teetotaler, In the church, people sort of kind of mock you. Um, Even other Christians, you you know, can't drink, and we go to home groups where we have coolers of you know coolers, and we got our beer, and and you know, it's really sad because I I hear stories of these churches locally that um, you know have their home groups, and people have been to them, and they you know their people are leaving tipsy, uh, where they're leaving their home groups, and it's it's like oh, but look at how liberal we are, look freedom in Christ. And Jesus drank alcohol. Yeah, but Jesus never sinned. So he was never once drunk, not one time. Um, it's funny. And we've sort of rationalized in our heads. And, and, then, and then somebody who's trying to do it right, it's like I've noticed that Christians are almost more brutal to other Christians who are trying to be holy. Um, they're, they're not supportive of the guy who's trying to say, you know what, I'm just not gonna drink alcohol. Oh, Mr. Legalism. Uh, yeah, but maybe that guy is an alcoholic. Maybe that guy struggled. Maybe his dad's an alcoholic. Maybe he's trying to, like there's so many things there. And, and I, um, man, I hope that, you know, you don't use your liberty in Christ to rub it in the face of uh, people who are trying to be set apart, sanctified and holy. Um, I, I got to caution you on that because I think the Lord sees that. Here, the Lord says, you know, my, the Nazarites, these are guys that were supposed to be set aside for my purpose, and you're, you're, you're forcing them to say, here's some wine, and then you're telling the prophets, the guys who are speaking the word of God, the equivalent of a prophet, often in the New Testament, is a preacher or a pastor. And what are they saying? Shut up, we don't wanna hear your mouth speak. And it's interesting, because it's, it's not just the world that's telling us pastors to shut up, it's the church. A lot of churches and people are like, yeah, we don't want to hear that. That's too radical. That's too legalistic. The problem is Israel's got, got this idea, and that's exactly what they're doing. And here's Amos the prophet calling him out on it. And the Lord says, I see all that, and I'm not going to let that go. So he, he, he's nailing them down here pretty airtight. But he, he finishes there in chapter 2, verse 13. It says, behold, I am pressed under you. As a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. Hmm, who's the I here? Um, This is an interesting verse because you can look it up in all the commentaries and everybody's got a different opinion. Um, It's it's one of those verses where I've searched high and low for somebody to speak authoritatively. Is this God saying he feels pressed as under a cart? Um, Or is uh, is this Amos or is it the people? that are being pressed under God's heavy cart uh, to pressure them? Like, who is this? And there's huge debate. Um, But as you read it, it says, behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed, is full of sheaves. Now, probably the one that I'm gonna land on that I've come across in a few scholarly attempts at at defining this verse is, have you ever had a, this is something we don't deal with all the time, a cart that's ready to go down a hill and it's under a heavy load and you're trying to stop it from going down the hill. Um, and the Lord's saying, uh, good luck with that. Um, Tad Slaughter and I, years ago, had a good friend of ours. He was like this holy man, I'm not kidding, Tom Patrick. And Tom said, hey, Brett and Tad, would you come over and help me out? I've got this, this trailer that I wanna roll off of a semi-truck uh, and I need you guys some beef you know, to come and help sort of uh, roll this trail, so Tad and I, cool, you know, cause we love Tom, Tom was just one of our good friends and, and uh, Tad and I got there, and we saw this, it was basically this little construction trailer with all of his tools, he was a carpenter and he had his skill saws and little table saws and stuff in this little trailer, but Tad and I looked at this trailer and it looked very heavy, very, very heavy, small but heavy. And and Tom had this little thing that he'd built up, sort of a ramp out of these little two by sixes and stuff to uh, sort of roll the cart down the ramp from this, you know, the semi bed was, you know, I don't know, four and a half, five feet high from the ground. And we're gonna roll this thousands of pounds cart. Um, I I, I probably shouldn't waste the time telling you this story, but it is a time I almost died in my life. I'm not kidding you. (laughs) You can ask Tad. Uh, Tad will agree that uh, we both almost died that day. Uh, because we, 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 it was Tom, me, and Ted. Tom was probably weighed a buck twenty, um, so he was not really any effect at all. Uh, but Tat and I were, were were formidable, at least uh, trying, but once that cart sort of hit his little ramp that he had built, uh, there was no stopping this thing. Uh, we, we just were pushed across this this thing and we were just trying to steer it as it gained momentum and, and it almost crashed. But by the grace of God, somehow we got it off there, but it wasn't, I mean, we should have died that day. It was, it was really a death moment. Um, I, I think when I read that verse, that's what the Lord is saying. This cart is heavy and it's coming. And what are you going to do to stop it? It's kind of the idea. Um, the Lord sees that. And he's saying, um, so whether it's a cart that's the Lord feeling like he's pressed or the people being pressed, the idea is doom is coming. That's the idea. Therefore, verse 14, the, f- the flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not strengthen his force, neither shall the mighty deliver himself, neither shall he stand that handleth the bow. He that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. Neither shall he that ride of the horse deliver himself. He that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord. What a picture. The mightiest, the strongest, the, the studs of the town, they're going to be running around naked, fleeing for their lives. And that's the image that Hosea leaves them here in chapter two with. Well, in chapter three, we're going to have a message of explanation of all these things. I was planning on diving right into that, but we are out of time. So we'll save chapter three uh, for next week. Uh, let's pray together. And Lord, how thankful we are uh, to know that you have eyes on the whole world and you see the injustices and the things that are evil and bad, but at the same time, Lord, um, we, we uh, find ourselves with sinful tendencies even as these pagan nations to hold grudges and to not keep promises, to treat the poor badly, to care more about our own thing than the things of others. And I pray that, Lord, even as you tell us everything is naked and open before him with whom we have to do. You see it all. So as your people, Lord, I pray that we would be hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that we'd not just ignore your word like the men of Israel, the men of Judah. Lord, I pray that we'd have your word right in the tip of our, on the tip of our tongue in, the, in our hearts, Lord, just uh, swelling up to remind us of truth from your word. Lord, help us to not be sucked into worldliness. I pray that we'd promote and encourage those who are trying to be set apart and holy rather than judgmental or condemning people of being self-righteous or whatever. Lord, I pray that we'd build up those who are trying to walk with you and encourage those, build them up. So Lord, give us just these simple little truths, Lord, as we learn from these nations. Lord, one thing we see here is people haven't changed all that much. We do the same things. We sin in the same capacities as these people. And yet, Lord, your word is clear. Your judgment is coming still. So help us to walk with you. Help us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Lord, bless the people who put the time in tonight to study these chapters. Uh, May they bring forth good fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.